0: Welcome back. We're taking care of business, and I'm Rob Rose. I'm Juliette Televi. And the National Health Insurance Bill may be the final straw for South Africa's overtaxed middle class. And the bill now before Parliament has been widely panned as financially ruinous, vague, ripe for corruption, enormously bureaucratic, and an assault on a private sector system that, for the most part, works.
1: And yet, despite this, they are friends of the NHI. We have Private Hospital Group Life Healthcare. We have Discovery Health, which is by far South Africa's largest open medical aid scheme, covering more than 2.8 million beneficiaries. And there are others as well who are supportive of the NHI. Today in the studio, we have Dr. Jonathan Brunberg, who is the CEO of Discovery Health. Jonathan, thanks very much for coming in.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: I was going to ask, I mean, I suppose just at the outset, we've heard a lot about NHI coming in in a couple of years, 2026, 20, I think is the time they've spoken of. What role is there for medical aid schemes in this environment?
2: Rob, we see a significant ongoing role for medical schemes um, right throughout the process of implementation, and even when NHI is fully implemented. Um, I think I say that for many reasons. Firstly, when you read the bill itself carefully, um, it's not at all clear to us that the interpretation that many people have put on it is that this means the ends of medical schemes. It doesn't actually say that. It does say in one part that medical schemes will be restricted to providing cover that is complementary to services that are reimbursable by the NHI fund. And the words are important because there's another very important section of the bill where it says that in order to get services reimbursed by the NHI fund, a patient will need to follow the NHI's referral pathway. Yeah. I, I like to use the example of say somebody a pregnant woman. Um so for antenatal care and for the delivery, this person would this patient would need to go to her NHI primary care center, which could be the local municipal clinic, might be a GP, might not. Um and then be and follow where she's told to go for the delivery etc cetera, etc cetera. what the bill goes on to say is if you choose not to follow those pathways and remember no citizen can be forced to use any particular healthcare provider then the nhi will not reimburse you and you can claim for that service from a voluntary health insurance arrangement it says that in the bill mm. So, if you put those two together, you know we do not see that this bill, by any stretch of the imagination, means the end of medical schemes. <laughs>
0: And yet you've had um, Tamar Khan wrote an article for the Financial Mail last week um, and she had Aquina Tulare um, quoted as saying that there is no plan to outsource any part of the function of the NHI to the private sector. So how do you square off the two?
2: I think you can square that. You can; Those two are not mutually inconsistent at all. What, what, uh, what Aquina Tulare was addressing was a, a very specific question, which is, will you as the NHI fund outsource the administration of your fund? to the private administrators because many people argue, I think with good reason, that there's tremendous, there's world-leading expertise here in how to manage health insurance, um, whereas the government does not have that expertise today. So it does make sense to ask the question, why not outsource some of that? She gave a very definitive answer, which is we're going to build it ourselves. Yeah. So that's fine. But that that is not the end of medical schemes. So that's about how you run the NHI.
1: That's a more administration question. Yes.
0: Although I mean, that is that is also what's freaking people out, quite frankly, given government's lack of capacity. Um, and which might suggest that it could be a failure from the get-go. Government has to build itself up to this world-class capacity that we already have in the private sector. Yes. I mean, that must frustrate you endlessly. No,
2: I mean, I do think that that is an important discussion to have over time, you know, with the government as it's building this capability, which is really, does it make sense to build it entirely yourself? Or why not, you know, use you've got global champions at home here, both hospital groups and also you know, health insurance administration. Um, We're sought after as partners all over the world, by governments, by the way, and private companies, and so why wouldn't you look to that expertise? But be that as it may, I think, even if you imagine a world where, um, let's say, like in Britain, um, the government is running a health service um, for the population, Um, even in that world, as in Britain, Um, 11% in the UK case of the population still purchase private health insurance, including for whatever you can get from the NHS, because that's your right to do that. Mm. And we cannot see why that should be any different here.
1: Jonathan, one thing I was going to ask is that you know, it comes down to the pressure on the middle class already. I mean, they already spend a lot of money on various things. And there isn't much scope to go around in an economy that's been growing so poorly over the last couple of years. So if people are being, have additional taxes to pay for NHI, they won't have much money spared to pay for extra medical medical care through medical aid. So that would be – I mean, do you agree with that that concept?
2: Yes. I mean, I think at, at, in in theory – if there are going to be significant new taxes, and and I really think there's a very big if, there, which we should come back to if if okay. uh, if you're so inclined, um, then I do think that for people, particularly people towards the lower end of the income spectrum of current medical scheme members, so you have nine million uh, members of medical schemes, and a proportion of them are really you know people earning let's say below fifteen thousand rand a month. Those are people who are hanging on there. I think with some difficulty. Mm. Now, if those people face an additional tax burden that's significant, I can imagine those people being forced to not be able, they won't be able to pay for both. Again, it's an if on the tax and I'll say why, but even if there's a tax, remember that it's likely to be quite progressive and therefore its incidence will be more towards the upper end of that middle class. But even for those people, I think we do have to acknowledge that could be really very stressful and difficult. I think the question becomes one of political feasibility, though, aside from the fiscal situation, which is if the health system has not improved much from where it is today, can we really imagine the government saying to people, you're going to pay a massive new tax, and by the way, we're going to force you off your medical scheme? I don't see that as realistic.
0: Yeah. So going back to the question of if there's gonna be a back big tax increase, yeah. why do you think that there may not be?
2: I think that um, you know most economists would agree, I hope, with what I'm about to say, which is that we're, we're, we're in a period for this country, which I think sadly lasts quite long into the future, of tremendous fiscal constraint. Um, this morning's main business day headline you know, quotes the the, the 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 Minister of Finance and Treasury calling on the cabinet to cut public expenditure by quite significant amounts, five percent in the current year, seven and seven. So not only is there no real capacity to raise new taxes, but actually what we what we need to ensure that we're not in the arms of the IMF in the next few years is to retrench public expenditure, not increase it. Mm. I'd go one step further, which is to say, even if the Ministry of Finance and the Treasury determine that there is space for more taxes in the next few years, I can't imagine that the first call on new tax revenue is an expanded health budget. Surely it is settling some of the existing debt.
1: Settling excoms debt.
2: Settling excoms debt, stabilizing the state-owned enterprises. So You know, all of that, I think, looked at rationally tells me that for many years to come, there's no major new taxes for for healthcare.
0: And yet that is a a rational response to where we are fiscally right now. And yet there seems this intent to drive the NHI through, uh, which is palpably at odds with our reality right now. I mean, what do you make of
2: that? I mean, I think it's, it's, you know, looked at purely rationally, Sometimes it's hard to add everything up. Um, I do think um, we have to take seriously that, you know, w- 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 the people talking about this are politicians, they're political leaders. A very significant promise has been made. Um, and I do think what you've seen with the new minister, you know, with strong backing from the president, is a minister who says, look, we've been talking about this for 10 years, let's get some action going. And He's definitely started to deliver. That doesn't mean that every single thing that's been said will just be implemented willy nilly. Because that the Minister of Health is in a cabinet, there is a Treasury, and you know, reality is going to I think constrain what can actually be done, you know, across the whole spectrum.
1: I think at the moment, the way I understand it, the government spends about it, is it a Possibly 160 billion Rand on healthcare?
2: Uh, it's over 200, probably 200. in the vicinity of 220 billion.
1: And, and the, the potential cost for NHI annually, I mean, I've seen some figures that start at 256 billion, but what do you think that would be? I mean.
2: Uh, I, I think that nobody can seriously put a hard number down with any confidence because it depends on a number of variables that haven't yet been uh, locked down. One is well, what package of care are we talking about? So mm. it could be. If you need to replicate the entire um, set of services that your average medical scheme member gets, that's one thing. If you're saying it's going to be primary care and maternity, you know, for the next ten years, that's something else. The second big question is, w- when we talk about the NHI, how does that relate to the current public health system? Because that two twenty billion Rob, is already being spent, you know, on a big system that employs. You know, hundreds of thousands of nurses and doctors, and and huge numbers of uh, has, has huge facilities, and so isn't that the main vehicle for delivering the NHI? So the mm. question then becomes, if you get a few extra billion, what would you do with it? You're not starting again; you've already got that budget.
1: But I mean, in terms of the treasury officials, I speak to like you mentioned, they talk how there's of how there's no real capacity in society to, to manage another tax. And we saw the response of taxpayers to the to the tolls in Gauteng, illustrative of, of that particular fact. Is there any way to have funded NHI not using an extra payroll tax? Cause, because if you can't absorb an extra payroll tax, is there any other way to make this work?
2: Well, I mean, I think, you know, there's payroll taxes, VAT, and personal income tax, and corporation tax, you've got all of those. Uh, I'm not a tax expert. I have heard the same comments, you know, uh, third hand or second hand from Treasury. I think the general consensus is our society has very limited capacity to absorb any new tax. You mentioned payroll, but it could be anyone. And as I said before, if there is going to be a new tax, I can't see it going first to the NHI. Mm. So I think that's that's the first point. There is. You asked, well, how would you do it? Well, one thing that has been mentioned. Um, Is that the government could consider reducing or even removing the the medical aid tax credit?
1: That's only 20 billion, though, right?
2: Yeah, it's about 17 billion. So it doesn't really give you much. Um, And it's also very popular and it is very progressive. It really helps those right at the bottom end of the income spectrum Mm. who are on medical aid. It means a lot in their take home pay. And I think if you took that away, firstly, I would anticipate a lot of resistance from trade unions, from public servants and and others, employers. But also you could see up to a million or two people dropping out of medical schemes and becoming an additional burden Mm. on the current public system.
0: I mean, because um, uh, we've got the city report, which talks about, um, and there's some very interesting figures there. In fact, it talks about how, efficient um, the private healthcare sector in South Africa is. but it talks the, figures, about
1: figure that, the figures they give for that is that people spend on average, I think, 16,000 rand per year. South Africans on the private market compared to the, I think f- the alternatives they give are in the UK, it costs 60,000 rand per person. And in the US, I think it's 150. But like you mentioned before we went on, the problem is that the the public healthcare system, people are spending 3,600 a year versus the sixteen. In the, in the private sector.
0: I mean, but going back to your point that if you had one or two million people dropping out of medical aids, they then become a further burden on the states. And the state doesn't support people who are in um, the medical uh, aid scheme basket, do they? So that would actually impose an additional burden on the system, which is surely financially insupportable.
2: I think that's right. And that's why what we've said, um, you know, in, in commenting on this bill is that we don't understand Uh, the idea that you'd want to prevent people, once they've paid their tax, if there's a new tax. So uh, we get that a, a democratically elected government has the right to impose taxes. So forget about the constraints for a minute, but imagine a world where the government could raise a new tax. Why then, what is the reason, after all the citizens have paid their tax, that you say to them, you can't now also have voluntary private health insurance? There's no country in the world that does that. And that's, I think, a key issue.
0: Um, Jonathan, maybe we'll get back to that. But I just wanted to ask um, and raise actually um, um, a, a column written by John Kane Berman in Politics Web this this week um, for the South African Institute of Race Relations. Um, there, I think, has been a very diplomatic approach from – Uh, companies such as yourself from people like Life Healthcare, which describes itself as a friend of the NHI. uh, Discovery isn't in that um, bundle of companies. But he says, once the ANC has got you to endorse the principle, it's won half the battle. And the result is that you find yourself fighting belated rearguard actions, such as taking the latest version of the mining charge to court as the government ratchets up its uh, demands. Far from being accepted in principle, the NHI should be fought in principle, imposing so coercive a system on the country is incompatible with a free society which respects the rights of individuals to make their own choices. I mean, it's pretty hard hitting. Is that what you wish you could say um, or do? Or do you have to play sort of a political game in that you'd like the ear of the minister, you'd want a, a resolution um, that is beneficial to everyone? Or should we actually stand up and say, this bill is flawed, it's fundamentally flawed, it should not go through?
2: No, I mean, to be very honest, um, it's not a diplomatic game that I think we're playing here. I think one has to kind of take a a view that says, look, we understand there's tremendous inequality in our country economically, and that's reflected in healthcare as it is in many other areas. And we understand and support that a democratically elected government feels it, it critical to try and tackle that and over a long period of time it has come up with a particular policy approach to healthcare reform certainly if one wanted to rewind the clock there are other ways to do this but our view is um this democratically elected government has selected this pathway and we should put our shoulder to the wheel and make it work now those who criticize it root and branch like you you know calling it medi escom or the one you've quoted to me. You know, we think it's a pointless exercise. It's kind of tilting at windmills. It means you do not ever participate in the debate. You are labeled as an enemy. You're outside the discussion. Um, And, you know, our view is don't tackle the entire thing at an existential level. Actually try and make it work. And we're going to work as hard as we can to firstly try and Get the improvements that the public system desperately needs and to use whatever assets and expertise we can contribute. But then critically to try and optimize the bill, remove its most damaging provisions, because certainly there are elements in it that we really do disagree with. And we've been clear on that. We don't think the right way is to tackle the thing literally at the most fundamental level. And that's a legitimate, you know, that's a bona fide view. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Can, can I ask, I mean, you talk, say there are other ways to do it. And I think the levels of inequality, are you're right, they're, they are ridiculous. They're unacceptable in our society. And the quality of healthcare provided in the public sector is terrible. Yes. People die when they shouldn't die. You had a story I read the other day of, of a woman who gave birth standing up in a, in a public hospital. The baby died falling down because there was nobody there to, to catch it. It was just it's, the stories are unacceptable in a modern society. Um, how would you have gone about fixing the, those problems rather than going with the NHI bill as it is? How would you have done it?
2: Well, I think those two are not mutually incompatible. So, you know, the NHI bill um, is, talks about some big changes, both new money, if that's possible, but also changing the way money flows in the system. And there's a lot of strong argument and evidence from other healthcare systems that when you create a split – in a healthcare system between the purchaser, now a fund, and the provider, which would now become the doctors and the nurses and the clinics, because the current our current public system doesn't have that split, so there's no accountability. You know, huge budget flows to each province; it flows through the salary system to the doctors and nurses. There's nobody who says, "I'm holding a budget," and you, Mr. CEO of Chris Harney, Baragwanath, I'm going to have a contract with you, and the money that comes to you is going to depend on how well you treat, you know, the 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 NHI patients. There's a lot of evidence that, well implemented, that system can introduce transparency and accountability. So there's nothing deeply wrong with the basic idea at all. In fact, it is a very legitimate, good pathway to reform. But it's not incompatible at the same time, Rob, with real effort to tackle the bread and butter, nuts and bolts, governance and management problems in the public yeah, sector. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's a management
2: problem, yep. not
0: a budget one.
2: Agreed. And that's certainly my view. I do not think throwing more money at the public sector today would make any difference. Certainly, there are many posts frozen and you know more money if you could employ more doctors and so on would make a big impact. But The fundamental problem is management, governance, corruption, um, supply chain management. And what I'm hearing from the new minister, and I know know him well, he's he's, he's highly competent and very energetic and driven, um, is a lot about let's fix the public sector. So the two are not, it's not one or the other. And I think many people in the debate are saying, why even have an NHI just fix? You know, I think our view is use the energy around this NHI to you know, drive change in the public sector as well.
1: You, you say he talks about fixing the public sector. I've seen nothing of that. I've only seen the public sector getting worse and becoming more unaccountable, yeah. more incidents of this. We have 0.3 doctors in the private sector per 100,000 compared to the the private sector. It's It seems like you say it's a management issue and it's managed badly, and I haven't seen any improvement in the management. And now – the perception that these people talk about of how, you know, why don't you just fix this first mm. comes from the fact that people think, well, you can't manage the smaller public health sector. Now you want to manage a much bigger one through NHI. Mm.
2: Yeah, I mean, I do think it's, uh, it is complicated. I, I was uh, presenting at a conference just earlier this morning, and actually it's interesting. When you look at the big uh, metrics for health system performance, things like maternal mortality, neonatal, you know, child mortality rates, ratios of doctors and nurses per thousand hospital beds. If you look at South Africa over the last 20 years, all of those have moved in the right direction. So it's quite important to the big picture actually is that we've not gone tremendously backwards. There's been a huge increase in the population using the public health system because our population is growing and we've had massive, uh, you know, immigration. Mm. And we hear lots of stories. So there are terrible stories. And There are places where I think you do take your life in your hands in the public hospitals and clinics. But at the same time, there have been achievements that we shouldn't neglect.
0: But is that because of private sector? I mean, does the the private sector, the increase in in growth in uh, the the hospital groups, you know, you've got life, net care, mediclinic, does that not skew the picture?
2: No, I don't think so. I think almost all of what I've sp- spoken about there are public sector achievements which we don't write about or discuss enough. It's too easy to complain and be negative. One of the biggest changes has been you know tackling the HIV epidemic with the, we have the world's largest ARV program here, and it works brilliantly well, and it's changed um, the mortality rate for adults from the '40s, you know, to the mid-60s over the last 10, 15 years. But there have also been improvements in, in maternal mortality, which is not about HIV. It's about services. So, okay. no, most of it is the public sector. But
1: there are yeah. massive queues. I mean, I'm pretty sure that most of the government ministers were probably covered by discovery. They probably go to public private hospitals, not public hospitals.
2: Yeah. They're covered by a separate medical aid for the parliament. Oh, yes, of <laughs> course. Called, <laughs> uh, me, called ParMed. ParMed. <laughs> and it's, a, it's probably one of the, you know, it's a brilliant medical scheme. You raise a good point there, which is, you know, it is interesting to ask this question. You know, would cabinet ministers, trade union leaders, trade union members, members of parliament willingly give up their medical scheme? And at what point will they do that? That's quite an interesting question to ask.
1: I mm, wish we had um, Dr. Mkise in the studio with us. Please promise to come on in, in a week or two. Another thing that I think is interesting is, is the reaction of the, the medical professionals. What has been your experience from speaking to them about their thoughts on the NHI?
2: Now, this worries us a lot, um, because there is tremendous anxiety, um, among the doctors we speak to and other health professionals. Um, you know, I, I spoke to a, a doctor in his early forties this week who said to me for the first time in more than a decade among his contemporaries and You know, doctors younger than him and a bit older, there's tremendous chatter about leaving. And I think that filters all the way down. I think young kids now may, at the margin, not go to med school. Those who are coming through medical school um, are going to, you know, have a a sort of more consideration about leaving. We've been in a period where many people were, were staying. And I think the difficulty now is there's tremendous anxiety, and so we see it as part of our responsibility to reassure those doctors and health professionals, but I do believe government needs to do that as well.
0: Mm. Um, Jonathan, some suggestions were that there are reforms that could be made uh, in the private sector, um, the one issue being reserves that are built up by the medical schemes that the, that are very um, – possibly unnecessary there's there's some criticism and I'd like to get your view on that but um the comment was that because you've had the NHI um, looming for 10 years, no reforms have been made, that if we didn't have the NHI, maybe there would have been more movement uh, because, you know, the private sector is not perfect. Uh, and I, I mean, I have had issues with discovery myself in the past. Um, is that a valid thing that the actually reforms that should have been made have stalled because everyone was waiting for the NHI to come through?
2: I, I fully agree with that. And there is a number of... Um Overdue, um, reforms that, that are required that could make a very positive impact.
0: I mean, such as f- perhaps give us some examples.
2: You mentioned the reserves. We have this very outdated law in our country that says a medical scheme must hold 25% of total annual premiums in reserve. All of financial services all over the world and Non medical scheme financial services right here at home have moved to a far more sophisticated and flexible uh, system of ensuring that there are sufficient reserves. It's based on what is the real risk of this entity. So, if you're a Discovery Health medical scheme, which is very large, 2.8 million uh, members, um, it probably needs a solvency reserve of around 8 to 10% of premium which is less than half of the current 19 billion. So you've probably which got- just 25%, na- is it? 25. So you've got now in the discovery of medical scheme approaching 20 billion in reserves, probably 10 of that could be released through lower premiums over time, better benefits. The Council for Medical Schemes seems to be working on this, but it, the progress has been slow. It, that's one clear reform that could be done that's just a win for everybody. On the other hand, there's smaller medical schemes where 25 cents, not enough.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's some uh, saying that you need 30% because you've got
2: underprotected members. Those schemes are at risk of liquidation of if some catastrophic event were to happen, a major epidemic or even a big run on claims. Another one, uh, Julieta is, um, you know, there needs to be more ability of medical schemes to protect against what we call in the industry ad- anti-selection or adverse selection. So as you know, anybody can join a medical scheme pretty much at any time. You can leave and come back. Um, and the ability of schemes to prevent that through some kind of underwriting, putting on waiting periods is very weak. The net result of that is, and it's very, very clear, that young and healthy people tend to stay out of medical schemes. They join when they're planning a family you know, they may, everything may go well, then leave again. But if, let's say, heaven forbid, there's a very sick child is, uh, you know, is born, you know, one parent and the child stay. Um, you know, the sicker stay, the young and healthy leave or, or stay out. Now, that uh, that tr- trend is leading to an in- a growing imbalance between young, healthy, who you need in an insurance system to subsidize older, sicker. Mm. And as that imbalance gets worse, premiums are going up more and more, which we're all experiencing. So there are reforms that could be done to stabilize that. You could let medical schemes do more underwriting. Better still, we think there should be mandatory cover. And the the health market inquiry has looked at this. We we think what you should say is anybody earning above a certain um, you know, um, salary should, must belong to a medical scheme. If There's been some proper work done that shows that if you did that and if you made the mandatory level the income tax threshold, medical scheme premiums would drop by about a third overnight.
0: Okay.
2: So there's a reform. I mean,
0: would you drop the, if, if, that, if that were to happen? Of
2: course, because a medical scheme operates, uh, as you guys both know, as a not-for-profit and it sets premiums to cover claims. And so if immediately you could see that you had an influx of young healthy members, your projection of next year's claims would plummet, and you'd immediately drop the premiums. So I think there's and no would, doubt. And would know.
1: take those people out of the public healthcare sector.
2: Exactly, you know, and then focus all the tax money the country can afford on improving the the, 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 the public system, the NHI. Yeah.
1: Can, can I ask on NHI, um, you know, you say you're gonna work within the system. What would be the ideal scenario for you for NHI? I mean, how would it look when it eventually comes in in 2026 or probably more likely 2030?
2: I mean, that's a hard question to answer, but um, just talking, you know, shooting from the hip, I mean, what I would want to see is a a very scientific, systematic approach to defining the package of benefits that people can access. And, for example, that you know, a, a message that says, you know, when we hit 1st of January, I'm gonna say 2023 or four, these services will be provided. And then what must go along with that is a very clear plan for making sure that that promise is delivered in the system so that everybody, you know, your wife, you know, your relatives, you know, anybody could trust that if I go to the local clinic, And they say, I must then go to Chris Harney Baraguanath or, you know, even a smaller hospital um, somewhere on the East Rand or the South Rand, that that you could trust that the maternity care you were going to get there is acceptable and is not going to put your life in danger. That's what I'd like to see. Mm. The question then becomes, can that be delivered? And many people, and you can see this in all the commentary, are skeptical.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the pilot <coughs> projects, uh, Catherine Child wrote a scathing article, and the the findings Seven
1: were… Seven NHI pilot projects yeah, that, that were well, disastrous. Disastrous.
0: The, yeah. You know, and so if that's the basis on which you're building a system, um, it's, it's fair to have no confidence
1: whatsoever.
2: Yeah, I'm, <clears throat> I'm a little less skeptical, at, and I think the…
1: But again, that's a management yeah, issue. It,
2: uh, th- th- how you sort out the public sector is entirely a management issue. I think, you know, and it's not like we're short of good managers in this country. <clears throat> you do have to, I think, get rid of patronage, you know, g- giving the CEO job of a local hospital to a supporter of the party or a friend, mm. those kind of things. I also believe one of the difficulties, and this is a, a controversial issue, but one of the difficulties, and we see it in education as well, is that – um Trade unions have made it very difficult for a local hospital CEO to discipline the staff uh, in the way that a private CEO would discipline some member of staff who steals or doesn't turn up for work or abuses a patient. Every other NHI system in the world has been a long, slow, evolving implementation. You can look at all over Southeast Asia, you know, all over Latin America, and so on. They take a long time to fully implement even when it's fully implemented and certainly during that time there is it's not obvious to us that the way the bill is drafted or the way it will finally settle means that people will not be able to purchase medical aid if they want to mm. so that's so even when it's implemented with all the difficulties and the delays our view is that we are confident that people will still have medical scheme cover mm.
1: Dr. Brumberg, thank you so much for coming in to chat to us and clarify some of these issues. I think there's a lot of anxiety out there, and I I think that we should be discussing more about this.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, pleasure. Mm